Silencio. Welcome to episode 72 of Oscar Sunday. I'm Austin Johnson. I'm Connor Izagari. And today we are honoring the 20th anniversary of Mulholland Drive, which got just one nomination at the 74th Academy Awards. That was for Best Director, Mr. David Lynch. Uh, Mulholland Drive premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 2001 and then got its theatrical release here in the U.S. on October 12th, 2001. Hence the 20-year anniversary. Uh, I'm absolutely ecstatic to be here with you talking about this movie 20 years later. I can't wait. Yeah, this is uh this is an oddball. Uh if you're if you've listened to any of our podcasts, uh, you know that I'm not quite a, a fan of the oddball most of the time. <laughs> I like a straightforward movie and I've you know been pretty critical of David Lynch in the past. If you listen to our 100th uh filmgasm on Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, you will have heard me bitch quite a lot about Lynch's work <laughs> and I'm going to do it again tonight. But uh, Mulholland Drive works. I don't know why it works. I don't know why you get drawn in. You, it, something about this film just makes sense. The fact that like, if you accept that it doesn't make sense, it makes sense. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100 percent. It's a it's a clear I think once you watch it two, three, four times, it's, you, it, you start to catch on what's what's kind of going on with the movie. And I think, you know, there's like hundreds of interpretations of, of Mulholland Drive, but I've, I think people have kind of honed in on it being, you know, here's uh, Diane picturing what would happen. At the very beginning of the movie, There's you should, you, we see a, a first-person shot of someone falling onto a pillow. It's clear, clearly a dream kind of movie. And David Lynch has described it as a love story in the city of dreams. And that just kind of makes sense. And I think this is Lynch's masterpiece. Uh, I think, I think Blue Velvet's very, very good and, and well-respected and well-liked amongst all kinds of fan groups. And then you have his kind of random stuff that people either latch onto or just don't like at all. And then, if, you know, his TV work, Twin Peaks, is a whole different story. Uh, I, had, I had a lot of fun that episode 100 uh, talking about one of, I don't know if I want to say one of my favorite directors, because it's like, there's enough there, you know, with, and he has a lot of shorts and he does a lot of music and does all, all kinds of different stuff, movies, and TV. I think I, he's one of the most, one of the guys I respect the most that, that feeling of, you know, that you get with uh, whether it be, you know, like Tarantino or Spike Lee or the Coen brothers or those guys that we kind of grew up watching. I think for Lynch, it, the, the attack on the senses feeling of, whoa, you can make movies like this is such an important feeling as a movie fan. And I remember having that exact feeling when I watched, you know, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. Like, wait, what? You can do this and it, like, it can work. Or watching The Big Lebowski and just thinking, how the hell? It's just like lightning in a bottle. And occasionally it'll hit you the right way and you just kind of fall in love with movies all over again. Mulholland Drive did that for me and still does it for me after watching it multiple times. And then, of course, watching it last night with the intentions of giving it awards was so, so difficult for me because it's such a stream of consciousness, dreamlike film, 
that kind of uses each puzzle piece to tag onto each other. And, you know, you kind of need the whole thing for it to be the experience that it is. But, you know, we're going to have awards for it. We have to. That's what we do. <laughs> uh, it's a really, really interesting cast, uh, you know, of course, written and directed by Mr. Lynch. So we're going to give out awards to it at the end of the show. Uh, before that, we have a fun project to do uh, to open us up here. And then we're going to talk about some of the individuals involved in Mulholland Drive. Then we're going to talk about the 74th Academy Awards for sure. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun this show. So you ready, man? I am. Yes, indeed. Let's do this. Hell yeah. Top five, 2001. I mean, why not? You know, these top fives are so much fun. I love going back and forth with you talking about movies. So uh, to kind of lighten the show up a bit, because Mohan Drive is a tough one to kind of process and digest. I want to do this exercise honoring these films that have been around for 20 years. And, you know, we were very young when these came out. And I think, you know, I have one on here that I've been with kind of the entire time. And the others are movies I've seen all over the place. And I just, 2001's a really unique year. Uh, has two amazing animated movies that went head to head uh, at the Oscars for the, the first ever uh, best animated feature film category. Uh, there's some really interesting kind of like uh, foreign films from this year that I like a lot. So I I'm excited to do this list, man. Uh, top five, 2001. I'll let you start off with your number five. My number five. Uh, <laughs> if you listen to the Filmgasm podcast, uh, you'll, you might remember this episode that I did with Caleb, where I unpacked a lot of childhood trauma. Ah, <laughs> and, um, I, I knew that I knew this was coming. <laughs> I may be the only person on earth who's put this into a top five uh evolution <laughs> yes yes it's, you might you might be the first person ever top five 2001 best films evolution <laughs> i understand that this is not a masterpiece this is not a great movie it's, to some it's not even a good movie but this <laughs> this is the movie that opened something in my brain that never left it instilled a deep-seated fear of weird-looking monkeys that I still deal with on a daily basis whenever I think of this fucker. So because it's so special to my development as a film fan and a horror fan, particularly, I had to put it on this list. Uh, so there it is. I love this movie. I understand not everyone does. It's Ghostbusters with aliens, but not nearly as good. Okay. But whatever. I fucking, I like it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. No, that's, um, that's what these top fives are all about. You know, it's not trying to be like, oh, these are the best five pieces of art from 2001. No, it's like, this is what I, this is what hits me. This is what is important to me. And I love that because my number five is going to be that exact same kind of alley. Uh, and it's Takashi Miike's Ichi the Killer. I fucking knew it. <laughs> I knew this was going to make the top five. Oh, God, I love this movie. Uh, we covered this one on film, guys, a long, long, long time ago. Uh, again, directed by Takashi Miike. Written by Sakichi Sato, based on the manga by Hideo Yama, Yamato. Not really sure how to say all those names, but uh, Takashi's an absolute mastermind, an absolute freak, a guy who churns out movies like nobody's business. You know, uh, you look at you look at the Western part of the world, uh, the filmmakers that we have, and it just doesn't compare to what's happening in the Eastern part of the world's movies, and just the constant repetition and kind of trying to top yourself and do different things. Each of the Killer is uh, not for the, you know, weak-minded or weak-stomached people. <laughs> it's, 
it's very, very, very gory, violent, uh, lots of torture type stuff going on. Uh, very funny at times, like very dark, dark, dark humor. And I don't want to give too much away because I really want people to, to watch this movie, seek it out. Uh, it's on Tubi right now, if you have that. If not, uh, I think it's been floating around Shutter here and there. So just, just try to keep your eye out for it. It is absolutely wild and has this toe-to-toe meeting at the end of the movie that's just so fucking epic. And the music is insanely good. Uh, I could talk about H of the Killer all day, and we did. We did do that. I can't remember what episode it was, but we did talk about it all day. I gave this movie a fucking 10. All, all my movies here are, are 10s. I remember when we did uh, the episode on H of the Killer, you, you and I were just kind of like both blown away. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm like, I'm all in. <laughs> I need to own this movie. I need, I need to, to see it more. I need to like study it and figure out how the hell was this made, you know? And I, I still feel that way. I love it so much. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I remember when we did the double feature of Audition and Ichi the Killer, and I went into that thinking, oh, Audition's going to be the fucked up one, and Ichi the Killer is going to be kind of the a lighter crime thriller palate cleanser. And holy fuck, was I was I way off? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Ichi the Killer is one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen. But there's something about it that keeps you from turning it off. It's just so engaging. It's such a cool story with such memorable characters and just fucked up visuals. Yeah. Um, it's definitely one that you you shouldn't jump into the deep end of foreign. I'll, I'll label it as a horror. I think this movie's a horror movie. Um, yeah, it's it's literally got on IMDb. It's action, comedy, crime, drama, horror, thriller. So everything. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but horror, I think it's like a crime horror movie, like straight up. It's crazy. That's that's awesome. I yeah, fuck. Oof. It's a vicious yeah. movie. <laughs> every every time I think about it, I just like Kakihara. Just like I just see him in my head and the, the weird mouth, you know, and the weird shit that happens. Uh, you spoke about the visuals. I mean, good night. Well, like what a beautifully dark movie. Just, ugh. <laughs> I, I I love it so much. You know, it's 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 one I kind of have to watch like on my own late at night. Like, oh, okay, I don't want to be labeled as just an absolute freak, you know. So. I'm just going to watch each of the killer. I'm watching basketball. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to have a movie that you could like get caught watching. Yeah. 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 Oh, Austin again, each of the killer. Oh God. This is the fish hook scene where he's hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> For me, it's, it's when he like has to cut off his tongue to prove like loyalty. Yeah. And, and he doesn't even need to do that in that scene. It's just so like over-exaggerated. So yeah. like, Oh, look at me, macho man. I have to like take a limb off just to fucking prove that I, I'm I'm right here. Yeah. Well, the other guy's like, no, no, it's not necessary. And he's like, no, 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 no. I offended your honor, so you're gonna watch this. <laughs> just fuck. Well, all right. Well, that's your five. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. yeah. That's my number five. Yeah. It it gets lighter. <laughs> <laughs> it it couldn't possibly get darker. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. No, it really does get lighter though as we go on. Like it's just a that's a I love list making, you know, and I think list making requires a bunch of variety. Uh sometimes you don't want to just be like, oh, these are all five the exact same movies. Sometimes that's why I get upset with the best picture group. You know, it's like, okay, really? Really? We got five of the five of the same movies here. We, can we can we get something other than a drama? You know, and while I love, you know, dramatic movies that are sometimes Oscar baby, 
I also just love genre, you know, genre films that are willing to go to the crazy, crazy lengths that no one else will go to. And that's, that's itchy. Yeah. I like these top fives to kind of reflect a good variety of my taste. Yeah. And uh, I think that's important. Plus I just, you know, I think narrowing anything down to your five favorites is really difficult, especially when, you know, with movies. So I love being challenged by these on a weekly basis. Hell yeah. Um, my number four is considerably lighter than each of the killer. Uh, it's one of the greatest remakes of all time. And one of the most entertaining heist movies of all time. Ocean's 11. Oh, very nice. Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> oh yeah. One of the greatest ensembles ever. Clooney, Damon, Pitt, uh, Garcia, Don Cheadle, Don Cheadle, Affleck, Julia Roberts, like Casey, yeah. not Ben, Scott Kahn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just never stops. And it's one of the few heist films where there's no betrayal. There's no double crossing. It's everyone's just in. It, go, it goes off without a hitch. That never happens. And I, I watched the 1961 with uh, the, uh, uh, the Rat Pack. Mm. And it was terrible. It's god awful. Yeah. It's super long. It's drawn out. It's just boring. Whereas Soderbergh's version is constantly popping. There's always something happening. It's you know keeps you on your toes. You think you know what's go like like what's going on, but then you got that final reveal of like the real heist that's been going on. There, I just I, I think it's fantastic. It's a fun watch. It's always something you can kind of throw on if you're bored and just get drawn into it. And uh, the two sequels never quite lived up. The first one is spectacular, though. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think I think this one's the best of, you know, Ocean's 11, 12, 13. Uh, what is it, Ocean's 8, the one that came out just a few yeah. years ago? That, was, that wasn't bad, but kind of forgettable. Yeah, just not, not totally for me. Uh, Ocean's, Ocean's is the culmination of Julia, Matt, George, and Brad. It's like, what? All at the same time, at this time, you know, this is 20 years ago. These people are like as hot as you can get it for, for people who are kind of in the prime, in the thick of their of their career, of their acting careers. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you get Matt Damon in between, you know, Goodwill Hunting and Jason Bourne. I'm like, what? That's fucking, <laughs> yes. it's fucking bonkers. You know, you get Brad Pitt in between, you know, he's just come off of, you know, his 90s run, including movies like Seven. And then he's just kind of become this huge star, huge, huge star. And he's, I think, giving his most movie star-like performance in this, in Oceans. Because uh, Brad Pitt is, we've always said, you know, uh, you always said, and now I always say as well, Brad Pitt's a character actor stuck in a movie star's body. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love what he's done since then. But this, the movie star quality of Brad Pitt in that movie is just off the rails. Uh, also, Fight Club coming off of that too, Jesus. And George Clooney is, like at this time, the sexiest man alive. Like. <laughs> He was voted, he was literally voted that. And he's like this, this just gorgeous, stunning performer who's like got, got the gravitas of like Humphrey Bogart, but the, but the looks of someone who's just from a different era. It's really cool. Really, really cool. And Julia, absolutely dynamite. She's to me, the X factor of the film. And if you don't have that, that performance, that committed performance from her, I just think like things could fall. I think she's kind of the, that one piece that's really holding it together uh, without us knowing it. And she's awesome. She was an absolute mega star at that time as well. So yeah. they've only gotten, they've only like gotten bigger, these people. 
they've just been on this train of just success. <laughs> and I like all of them. You know, they're all likable, just flat out movie stars. Yeah. And to, to build an ensemble like that, Soderbergh was ambitious as hell to remake yeah. a, you know, a heist kind of comedy that didn't really land in the sixties, you know, oceans 11 prior to 2001 didn't like, didn't really have an audience. Like there were people who liked Frank and would just do anything, you know, be a part of anything Frank was involved in, but he, he made this film stand out. That's why I, you know, I called it one of the best remakes of all time. Cause it did what a remake should do. Take a shitty movie and make it better. And yeah. yeah, Soderbergh's a filmmaker who I still have to kind of explore. I've never seen Traffic or Aaron Brockovich. Oh. I got I to gotta do that. Yeah, Traffic <laughs> kicks ass. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Ocean's Eleven, number four. Beautiful. I love that. Uh, yeah, you, you, you'd like both of those a lot. Uh, his 2000 movies, Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to kind of like double feature Traffic and Ocean's Eleven. That's a filmmaker who's just, I think, underappreciated by the masses, but by like movie fans, like straight up movie junkie, popcorn, fucking, you know, this is what we do. They understand he's been, he's just churns them out. He's one of the rare American filmmakers who will just keep working. You know, I spoke about Takashi Miike being kind of, you know, like the definition of the Eastern type of filmmaking where, you just, this is what you do. You just make them and make them and make them. And you're kind of doing it on your own practicality and making your, you know, raising your own money with American filmmakers. It's like, Oh, I'll take four years off and think of a new idea and then do it. You know, with Soderbergh, it's like, no, I think I'm going to combine those two things. I think I am going to play the game a little bit, but I'm also going to make movies that I want to make because they're fun, entertaining, and sometimes really fucking good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> occasionally it will really hit. And I think oceans is one of them. Yeah, I mean, who else could just, you know, suddenly come out with Logan Lucky? And, yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, make it work. I, yeah, Soderbergh, I do think, is a guy who doesn't really get talked about when we talk about, like, the greatest American directors, but he deserves to have a spot in that discussion. He's done some really incredible films. Yeah, he's like a tier right below that, you know, he's, because I respect the filmography, the length of it. I mean, yeah. uh, Logan Lucky. He's the guy, Steven Soderbergh directed fucking Magic Mike, you know, and you, you're I like, oh, you're like, oh, bullshit. You know, you see the preview and you're like, what is this? That movie's really fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second one, he's not at the helm for the second one. The second one definitely just lacks so much style and so much actual direction. The first film is like, OK, this is, this is a legitimate, you know, craftsmanship kind of movie. And I, I, I respect the hell out of that. You know, I, I really do uh, love that guy. I would love to do an episode on him one day and kind of do a top five Steven Soderbergh films because, yeah, he's awesome. Uh, he's, yeah. Go ahead. He's got enough Oscar yeah. uh, resume to do that for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many of his films where he would get brought up, you know, because they, they, they appear at the Oscars and he's, he's just the man. And he directed last year's fucking Academy Awards. And I thought, oh, yeah, I thought there were moments of it that were really good you know i thought the very beginning when they he did the tracking shot of regina king walking up as if it were a movie very cool very very cool um i hope he gets another try i, I want him to get another go at that because i think there were a couple things that got messed up that weren't totally his fault you know mainly the awkward anthony hopkins over chadwick boseman at the very end and just kind of feeling like wait what 
why would you finish on this and it not be Chadwick fucking Bozeman, you know? Yeah. Uh, love, love Anthony Hopkins and the father. Love, love that performance. And it's, you know, totally deserving of, of some kind of recognition. But it was just weird how they did that, you know? Yeah. All, All good. Right. He'll get another go at it. Uh, so that's your number four. All right. Get down to it. These are some fun films. Uh, my number four is a little, little tiny film called Fellowship of the Ring. Over the Rings. Uh, <laughs> my favorite of the trilogy. Uh, another, another 10. Uh, just a almost damn near perfect film. Kind of the film I wish would have won Best Picture, just because I think it makes the most sense as that kind of title. Uh, it's not obviously not my favorite film from the year and not the one that speaks to me the most, but I think it speaks to everybody. I think it should speak to everybody. <laughs> uh, I get if you don't like this type of fantasy setting, but these stories are unbelievable. They're put to the screen so well. Peter Jackson's on a different fucking level and fellowship is just a just a treat because you have that you have that slow burn where you're 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 getting introduced to the characters and you're kind of seeing the world for what it is and the ending is just so goddamn epic uh two towers and return of the king i would say have a better pace to them they're more rewatchable on that front but fellowship is where you learn who everybody is and what everything is and i remember as a kid this is the one that i have in my top five that i, I remember just watching as a child and being amazed by world building and that movies can do that inside three hours. It can move as fast as Lord of the Rings and teach you so much about a whole new world that you don't know anything about. Uh, and that's, that's so special as a kid, your, your imagination just starts bending, uh, you know, hobbits and elves and orcs, you know, like, yeah, I mean, sign me up. I, uh, I will be talking about fellowship a little bit later. Yeah, I figured. What's your number three? <laughs> uh, my number three is a film that has popped up on more top fives than I ever thought it would. And that is Shrek once again. Yes. No, it should. It should show up. Shrek is the shit. Shrek is this, the shit. I feel like I've praised this almost this. made the cut for me. Almost. I feel like I've praised this movie more than I've praised any movie on this particular podcast. Shrek keeps coming back up. And I love yeah. that because it's a great movie. It's one of the best love stories I've ever seen. A great buddy movie, great fa fairy tale, great kids movie, great grown-up comedy. It's got everything. And it's endlessly rewatchable, and I love it to death. Yeah, Shrek is, yeah, Shrek is pretty much perfect. Uh, obviously, we did a whole episode on it. Uh, this is the movie that I was referring to that went head-to-head -head with Monster Sing. Just a really cool battle, battle for the first ever best animated feature. And Shrek, the one that's kind of just making fun of Disney, the DreamWorks film, wins. So really cool. <laughs> yeah. I love Jeffrey Katzenberg's Revenge. You know, fuck you, Michael Eisner. <laughs> Immortalized as Lord Farquaad. I love it. So good. <laughs> so good. Um, <clears throat> number three. This is a fun one. This is a, just a delightful film uh, by, by Mr. Wes Anderson, who has his new film, The French Dispatch, coming out very, very, very soon, later this month. And uh, this one is The Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. Probably my favorite Gene Hackman role uh, of all time. <laughs> Not the best, but my favorite. Uh, ben Stiller is off his rocker. Gwyneth Paltrow is amazing. Luke and Owen Wilson are both unbelievable. Uh, Bill Murray, Danny Glover, Seymour Castle. Love everybody in this movie. But Angelica Houston, she's the... She's the mother, the mother at the top, who's just uh, holding everything together somehow. And she's 
She's stellar. Uh, this is uh, this is Wes Anderson's third film, and one of my favorites of his, and obviously one of my favorites from the year. It <clears throat> never ceases to make me laugh to where I'm crying, and then it just makes me cry. Uh, I love when a movie can do that. I think it accomplishes something really special when it can take you on opposite ends of the spectrum for emotion, and Royal Tenenbaums does that with ease. Every time, every time. This is one of the first, actually I think it is the first, this and Life Aquatic were my first ever uh, Criterion Edition DVDs, and I've just held on to that sucker very tightly, and it's kind of a comfort, it's kind of a comfort movie where I can go go to it and kind of forget about any stress I have. So I, I have to have it here. I got to watch this damn movie. Yeah. Wes Anderson is a guy who I've just kind of been waiting for an excuse to tackle. And now that the French dispatch is coming out, I have my excuse. So I will be using the next week or so to really just <clears throat> tear this guy's filmography up and watch as much as I can get my hands on. Maybe you know, not, I don't know. This is a tough conversation, but like, he's, he's one of my favorite Texas artists, you know, uh, as far as filmmakers go, you know, I'd say like him, Linklater and Terrence Malick are, uh, I love those guys uh, deeply, but Wes Anderson does stuff specifically in Bottle Rocket and Rushmore that speak, speak Texas to me in different ways that I, I just didn't know movies could do and made me feel a way that I, uh, I'm always chasing. And he continues to just get better. Uh, Budapest Hotel is unbelievably good. Uh, Isle of Dogs is fucking awesome. And French Dispatch looks like it might be his best cast ever, which is saying something. Yeah, it's got... I, I, my favorite uh, skill Wes Anderson seems to have is his ability to bring together an ensemble, which is, I mean, his production design speaks for itself. I mean, that's godlike level ability right there. But... What he can do with an ensemble, just people who want to work with him, it's so cool. He brings together the coolest artists, and uh, I just don't really have an excuse of why I've never really explored him. I've, I've seen the Grand Budapest, and I've seen the Life Aquatic, but outside of those, I've never really, uh, tr- I don't know. So it's time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going you're gonna to be able to understand my rants a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love him. He, he means a lot. He means a lot to me, and uh I'm excited for French Dispatch and I'm excited for anytime he comes out with a film. It's just, it just means like he's going to be on my mind. And I love that. I love that feeling. Fantastic. Uh, I believe it's my two. Yes. Yes, it is. My number two is a film that may be one of the most intense crime dramas of all time. Training day. Oh, let's go <laughs> yes i every time i watch this film no matter how many times i've seen it no matter i know what's going to happen i am on pins and needles the entire time because of denzel's frightening performance as alonzo harris this super crooked cop who does not give a fuck and it's it's a remarkable performance well deserved of best actor at this oscars i love i love that he won for i love when actors win oscars for playing bad guys yes it's, I, there's something about playing a villain that just, you know, completely cuts off your inhibitions and lets you go wild as hard as you need to, to go. And Denzel completely abandoned like this heroic visage. He's been he built up over a career of playing like noble figures and just dumped everything evil into this son of a bitch. It was so great. 
and he he holds this film together so well. And I mean, Ethan Hawke's no slouch either, but Denzel's on a different level here, and he makes this thing unforgettable. And one of my favorite 2001 films. Uh, I wish this had gotten more Oscar attention, apart from just the nominations for the two of them. But I'm I am glad he won. Uh, love this movie. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the more deserving Oscars, uh, performance Oscars like we've ever seen. Uh, he's, if he's not in this, this movie, it, it, it would fall. It would fall. If that was, you know, if that was literally anyone else, any other American actor, just there's just no way they could do what he's doing at that time in his career with what we, uh, as an audience, uh, believed him to be you know Denzel he's fucking Denzel he doesn't he doesn't like curse <laughs> he, he doesn't he, he's like such a good guy such a honest calm composed human being and to see him playing Alonzo and just right away when they're in the diner and he's like you got a dick <laughs> Ethan Hawke's like what and he's like you got a pocket on both sides <laughs> reach in there pay the bill <laughs> It's just, it's fucking nuts to experience that. You know, uh, a lot of the greats do it back and forth all the time. You know, like Daniel Day-Lewis, Gene Hackman, who I just talked about, Robert De Niro. Those guys can go back and forth all the time. But Denzel, for him to go so far on the opposite end, you, you just have to kind of admire it. Uh, Antoine, Fuqua, Antoine Fuqua, some pretty good direction. But uh, this movie really is standing on Denzel just crushing every scene. And taking a screenplay that could be corny, unless it's him. You yeah. Know, uh, I, that's, that's just, he's just the man. Uh, <laughs> I, I also watch this movie a lot. And every time I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, I'm just kind of on the edge of my seat. Because I'm like, oh, what does Alonzo say next? Oh, yeah, that fucked up shit. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I, I love it. One of my favorite Los Angeles movies, one of my favorite cop movies. Uh, and definitely up there for my favorite straight up Denzel performance of all time. I think the way Denzel keeps it from being corny is because he's played heroes his whole career. You believe that this is a guy who went into being a cop with the best intentions, who got corrupted by just L.A., just the, the shitty environment that he be, was a cop in and he just let it embrace him. Like there's something about Alonzo where you can tell like once upon a time he was Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Yeah, he was Jake Hoyt for a minute there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's the layers, man. The layers, the, the backstory that you don't see is what makes this performance so perfect. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's stellar. This is this is my sixth favorite. It literally missed the cut by by so little. Uh, it's amazing. I love it so much. It's a it's a definite nine kind of movie for me. Almost almost perfect. If if there were other things in play that were a little bit better. Yeah, and Denzel, and Denzel wasn't just outshining the fuck out of everybody. I would probably give it a ten. Uh, and I agree with you. I think Ethan Hawke is great in it, but that yeah, Denzel is, is doing something else. I, I've said before. I think along with Daniel Plainview, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's role as Daniel Plainview, I think those are the two most deserving Best Actor wins. Like I think maybe I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. Seen a lot of them, and. Mm -hmm. Those two, they happen to both be in the 2000s and they just crush, crush them so hard, crush those roles so hard that you have to have to give them respect. Yeah, no argument here. I Those two performances are 
a head above so many others and really redefine what it means to be an actor. Yeah. It's remarkable. Every, especially Daniel day in there will be yeah. Daniel playing is I, I have no words. It's such a, yeah. a it's brilliant just... performance. That's just like every other person up against him that year should have just not shown up. Like you're not getting it, buddy. You're great, but you're not getting it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's just, there's just no shot. You can't even, a lot of stuff you want to translate into words like, Oh, this is what this means to me it's with that one. It's like, <laughs> it's just, it's just perfect. Just watch it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Great. Great. Number two. I love it. I was hoping that would show up here today. Turning day is one of the first movies I think about when I think about 2001, it's just epic. Uh, my number two is a film I've talked about before, maybe on sneak preview. Yes. Our very first sneak preview that we ever did. We did a uh, uh, top 10 films of 2021, or sorry, 2020. And then we did, uh, was it top five? Yeah, top five first time watches of 2020 of films that are not from 2020, of course. So, you know, is whatever we kind of did in our own time. And I talked about Itu Mama Tambien, Alfonso Cuaron, absolute masterpiece. One of my favorite uh, LGBTQ uh, movies, one of, my favorite movies, obviously. Probably my favorite Alfonso Cuaron, which is saying a lot. The guy is an absolute freak, you know, uh, directed Children of Men and Roma and Gravity and my favorite Harry Potter movie, Christopher Vascovan. I love this guy. Love Alfonso Cuaron. And I can't wait to see what else he's going to do the rest of his career. Uh, really happy about the, the recognition he got from Roma. He too, Mama Tambien is just dynamite, a dynamite film. And is the very first movie I watched when I signed up for the Criterion channel. I watched uh, these little segments that they have on there, which are some, it's one of my favorite ways to pass time if I'm just looking for five or 10 minutes to burn. Uh, it's uh, Adventures in Movie Going, I believe is what it's called. And it's, you know, different actors, directors, <clears throat> writers that are just obsessed with movies talking about movies from the Criterion collection that, that moved them. And I, I watched Barry Jenkins and he talked about Itumama uh, Tenbien. He talked about Three Colors. He talked about uh, La Cienega, which I also, from 2001, amazing movie. Uh, Lucretia Martel, just a fucking awesome film. And he, the way he talked about Itumama Tenbien, just, just I, it's like hook, line, and sneaker. I just, I had to see it. Uh, I love the way Barry Jenkins articulates how he feels about movies. And I obviously love what he's put onto the screen and that respect that I have for him caused me to, okay, this is going to be the very first thing I watch after signing up for, after getting the subscription, like a year and a half, uh, fuck, it's, it's coming up on two years. Once we get into the new year, uh, I obviously use the streaming service a lot, but I'll never forget the very first movie I watched on there. And Alfonso Cuaron is not only the director of this movie, you know, he wrote, wrote it with his brother, uh, Carlos Cuaron, uh, he is pretty much in charge of everything. Uh, you know, he does a lot of the editing. Uh, his his good buddy Emmanuel Lubisky is the cinematographer, and they just have this easy like friendship where they're this is just what we do. Uh, we we make really cool movies that look awesome. And Itumama, uh, while I could say everything about the plot, that's another one I want people to check out. I want people to seek out for themselves. Uh, it pops up on Criterion. It's on AMC Plus right now, if you have that through Amazon Prime. 
uh, stellar, stellar movie. My favorite thing about it is the feeling it gives me of, because uh, there's a big road trip involved in the movie and the shots from the car and the sun as they're riding through Mexico uh, just reminds me of driving through the hot sun of Texas. And I love when a movie can do that. Uh, such a foreign idea and foreign movie can give you those kind of home, those homely vibes. And I'm very, very grateful for it. Uh, you actually bought it for me on DVD, Connor. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember where you got it. I found that at my local half price books and just thought, you know, why not? Yeah. Yeah. You bought it for me shortly after I kind of wrote my review and raved about it and gave it a 10 and was like, this is just unbelievable. A kind of floored me kind of movie. And now I own it. It's on my shelf proudly. And I hope, I hope people check it out. Special, special stuff. I have kind of a mental list of these films that you, you, you bring to me and you rave about and you like really respect. And I know that you appreciate the value of the, the physical copy as much as I do. So I always, yeah. you know, if it's, I did never any trouble and I always enjoy seeing the look on your face. So it's always yeah. worth it. <laughs> yeah. That, that one, that one was cool. I, you've given me a lot of movies and that, that one was like, Oh yeah. Like he, he's listening <laughs> <laughs> or he's just fucking tired of me bringing it up on these goddamn podcasts. <laughs> If anything, of giving you the movie is just going to make that worse. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Because now I can watch it forever. Uh, b- before before we get to your number one, uh, and then my number one, one of my favorite Star Wars performances, this is weird, is uh, Diego Luna. And Diego Luna and Itumama Tambien is a fucking revelation. <laughs> he's, he's so fucking good in that movie. Uh, his, his co-star, Gail Garcia Bernal, is also awesome and that's that's the guy who's uh to me like the genius of coco the voices in coco but uh he's awesome in this movie and diego luna when i saw him in star wars i was like oh whatever but he's actually got this really amazing interesting career working with different mexican directors and now because of this movie i'm kind of all in on him and i love when that happens i love when you get attached to a performer because of that one spark that one thing that they do where you're like oh fuck yeah like this is this is kind of why i watch you know one of my favorite things about Rogue One is the um, representation that it gives yes. throughout. Like, you know, we finally get a Star Wars story that really focuses on the war part of Star Wars and gives us a, a broad scope of characters to relate to and gives us a fully developed team in two and a half hours. That's, in, that's incredible. People we've never seen before, by the end of the movie, we are heartbroken that we have to lose these guys. It's it's such an underappreciated film. And uh, you know Diego Luna's getting his own show, right? Yeah, I have, I have definitely heard that. That might get me to watch TV. I don't really watch <laughs> TV shows, and that might get me. <laughs> I don't usually watch TV anyway, but if they're Star Wars or Marvel-related, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Yeah, well, that's different because it affects your movie-going experience, and you want to know what you can – all you want to know all that you can know going into each thing to have context. So, I, yeah, I think, I think Marvel is just a goddamn – they're just a – genius mastermind where they're they know that hey uh these people we've taken care of this stuff so well in the past 10 years that people are going to sit their asses on the couch for eight hours if we if we make the right content and they're right they're fucking right (laughs) yeah it's you know i'm i'm a fanboy i'm not ashamed to admit it i love this shit to death don't be 
Yeah. Don't be. Yeah. Am I going to like, you know, jump down someone's throat if they say they don't like it? No, it's your life. I don't give a fuck. But I love this shit. And I, I'm, I'm counting down the days to Hawkeye. I don't care. I think that's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be a fun ride. Yeah. Merry Christmas to me. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, who's number one? Is it, yeah, is it mine? Yeah, yeah, it's yours. Yeah. Well, I think we all know what it is. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I can't I can't betray my my Lord of the Rings. This is I mean, we did a whole you know, our 50th was the Lord of the Rings. One ring to rule them all. There's a reason we did the 50th episode on that trilogy, because it is flawless and just perfection. It's beautiful. It's a diamond of a trilogy. And it all starts here. Fellowship of the Ring is the beginning of this series. It's a great it stands alone, really. Uh but it does such a great job turning a super thick fantasy epic into a relatable, easy to follow film. Uh, I, I think it's brilliant. I think the CGI and makeup and everything still holds up. But may, the performances are incredible. I, to me, like the greatest scene in the trilogy is the, is the, the trek through Moria and yeah. Gandalf facing down the Balrog. I get chills every fucking time, but also like, you know, Boromir's death scene is so gorgeous and heartfelt and there's so many just great character moments and just this film alone that really make it stand out among two others that are arguably you know it, i don't want to say better but like it really depends on the day like what which one do i love the most right now i don't know <laughs> it's yeah. it's incredible uh nothing else was going to take the number one spot this has been a firm favorite of mine for pretty much my entire life so there it is <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a special one, you know. I love, 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 love the opening to the, you know, the Shire and watching the Hobbits and kind of getting close to them. And then all of a sudden you're just on this insane three movie journey with two Hobbits kind of following them and uh, all the little branches of Aragorn and Legolas and Gandalf and these different characters. It's just, it's just so worth your time. You know, there's, there's not, there's not a lot of better ways to spend 10 hours of your life than watching Lord of the Rings. Yeah, if I'm ever on a super long-ass flight, I know what I'm going to do. Just yeah. knock unplug. them out. I'm going to just enjoy Howard Shore's fantastic music and watch some of the greatest performances in film history and just go away to the Shire for a little while. Yes. Yeah, I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, just like just like I kind of knew what yours was, you obviously know what mine is, my number one. It's the film we're talking about today. <laughs> Mulholland Drive. Uh, Jesus. Uh, confronting movies that you love is sometimes, well, it's, it's always fun and it's always uh, rewarding, but it is difficult. And when you really love something, sometimes it's just because, it's just because, this is what it is. And this is, this is, this just connects and speaks to me. And that's how I've always felt about Mulholland Drive. Uh, like if, it, if, if lunch gets brought up or Twin Peaks or Mulholland Drive or whatever it is, Eraserhead or Blue Velvet or Lost Highway or Inland Empire or Wild at Heart, all these different things, if they get brought up, people are like, well, like it makes no goddamn sense. And I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't, but it does to me. <laughs> it's one of those, uh, niche little things where sometimes you just fit into those those weird things 
and with Lynch's work, I just, I just feel like I'm kind of at home. It's hard to explain. I don't feel like I even need to explain it. It just makes sense to me. And I think that's what Lynch wants out of his work. Uh, the many, many interviews I've watched of him just kind of talking about format and style and breaking those barriers. He, he, he doesn't want people to feel like they have to translate his work into words, but instead to just experience it. And that's Twin Peaks is like that. I could watch that show all goddamn day, even though I know there's plot holes and little things that happen in the plot that I'm frustrated with. I'm just having so much fun from point A to point B, watching these characters dance to weird music and find weird things out in their city and have these different connections to Las Vegas. <laughs> like what's happening? You know, I, I'm so, I'm so on the, um, the team where I'm like, buy the ticket, take the ride. Like, I, I just don't care. I just don't care. And I know sometimes I get slapped in the face for that because it's like, Oh, well, what is all this for? You know, there's no clear destination. I just always go back to, it's about the journey and not the destination. It's about the journey. And Mulholland Drive is a fucking journey. It's a wild, wild one that started as a TV pilot. You know, in 1999, uh, David Lynch and ABC, who, you know, that's the studio in charge of a Twin Peaks and in charge of ultimately telling him, hey, tone it down, fucking chill out and finish off this goddamn story. You know, uh, they're ultimately who said to Lynch when he's making Mulholland Drive as a pilot, and he had like the first, you know, the first episode, the, the first hour done. And it was open-ended because he wanted to just fucking bounce around his ideas. They said, no, we're done. This is too weird. This is too goddamn weird. What's going on? Why is there this weird ass scene at Winkies? What are we doing? <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until like a year later where he got funding from Studio Canal, the French company, French production company. That's when finally Mulholland Drive, the film, was able to be on the table make an ending, Mr. Lynch, make an ending and we'll, we'll get this movie out there. We promise. And then it, it wows audiences at can. In fact, he wins best director along with the Coen brothers for the man who wasn't there. They, they had a dual, dual win there uh, where audiences were just floored by both movies. That movie, that movie's awesome. I don't think we gave that much movie of uh, that movie enough praise when we did our big Coen episode the movie kicks ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we barely talked about that. I would very much like to revisit that proper here. Me too. Uh, yeah, we will. We will one day. We will. Uh, that's, a, that's a badass movie. So the, the, those, uh, obviously, Joel, Ethan, and, and David Lynch, just kind of big names that you just recognize right, right away. Uh, after Cannes, it finally was like, okay, let's, let's release this to, to your audience, to, to your, your, home, your homeland, you know, Mr. Lynch's homeland. And uh, that's why, you know, in October 2001, it had its theatrical release and immediately became a cult, a cult kind of favorite where people latched onto it and said, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. This is what cinema is for. And other people who were like, what in the world am I watching? Why am I spending two and a half hours watching this, you know, lackadaisical dreamlike first hour and a half. And then this evil, dark, nasty last hour. What is this? Uh, and I'm obviously again in the boat where I'm like, this is, this is a masterpiece. This is fucking awesome. This turns format on its fucking head and just messes with your, you know, messes with uh, your senses and 
wants to distort you and have, have this extremely disorienting feeling throughout the entirety of the film. And I love that about it. I love how committed it is. I love that he can take an idea from one year that was a TV show and adapt it and just be like, okay, I have more ideas and just do it and just finish it. And it works. It actually works. And so I, I just, I, I love, I love this movie to death. Uh, it was always, always my number one after I watched it for whatever year it came out. You know, it wouldn't have mattered if it was 2001, 2002, 2003. This is one of my favorite films of all time. I think very few movies can rival it in my mind. And it's, it was always going to be number one on this list. Uh, I love doing these top fives when the episode film is my number one. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, I, I've known this is a firm favorite of yours for quite some time. And I've kind of just been waiting for it to pop up on this show. I knew it was going to happen. Uh, I am insanely jealous of your ability to just kind of go with it when it comes to movies. <laughs> I wish I had that so much. Uh, yeah, I've got my own, you know, narrative beefs with Mulholland Drive, but I, honestly, not that many. This is one of the few Lynch films where I was able to kind of, you know, figure it out. Not, not well, not yeah. figure it out, but like just kind of accept it. Yeah, and gather, gather the okay. There's two versions of this character. You know, there's there's the Betty and there's the Diane, and there's the Rita and there's the Camilla, and you know, you kind you can kind of wrap your head around this one. Like it's like okay, okay, that makes sense. It's not just it's not just bonkers. And I think there's reasoning for a lot of stuff, which Lynch is never going to explain. He doesn't care to do that. That's not, that's not what he does. That's, he doesn't really like to discuss themes or the purpose of the film necessarily. He's like, just, just take it. It's yours. Like do whatever you want with it. Interpret it however you want to. It's yours. It's, it's for the fans, you know, and he just enjoys doing it. I love that about him. I love that. He just has, he's like a kid. And when he's in the director's chair, he's like, this is just like home to me. And I love that. I love that about him. I, I struggle with wanting to know every little thing about something. I will read, read and read and read and read about one thing, about one album or one movie or, or one celebrity for fuck's sake. And, and I'll find everything I can about them. And at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I mean, what does it really matter that I, that I, <laughs> what does it matter? What, it, what exactly I think, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. And with a lot of art, it's just better to accept it. Like you said, you just, all right. Okay. That doesn't mean you have to like it. I'm totally okay with someone being like Mulholland Drive is, is, is whatever. I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I think Naomi Watts is undeniable. I think David Lynch's directing is un, un, undeniable. But the, like you said, the narrative stuff, I get it. I get it. It's just, I'm, but, I'm definitely, I'm definitely on a certain team. <laughs> but I'm well aware that that's a, you know, a personal problem that I've, you know, I deal with when I watch movies, you know, it's because that's just not the way that I write. It's, you know, I, I write straightforward shit, you know, this happens because this happens because that happens. And then the book's over. It's, that's just how I do it. So when I see something like this, that's just not at all the way that I would plot something out. I automatically get defensive and just turn it off in my mind. I'm like, well, no, this isn't, this isn't right. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to try to move past that, but it is not easy to just rewire myself to watch movies no. a certain way. It's really hard. No, no, that's, that's one of my favorite things about this journey is realizing how differently people watch movies and then learning, learning to relearn and unlearn stuff as a watcher. You're like, okay, like, let me, let me see what's here. You know, 
I, I, I'm with you. I'll stand up for movies like Evolution. Like, no, no, no. Like, watch it. Watch it. Don't just jump on the bandwagon of this is bullshit. This is shit. Just because that's what people, the general masses do. Just watch it. It's actually really fucking funny and really clever. <laughs> and, a, and a great way to look at a specific year like 2001. You know, it's okay to have a different perspective. It's hard. It's really fucking hard. But I, I think it's very possible. I think movie fans have to constantly keep that in mind that people watch stuff differently and not everything is going to be a generalization. You know, it's not all, this is bad. This is bad. Or this is really good. This is really good. I like, I like, I I like when we have differences and I like when we realize it's okay to look at both ways. You know, I like that. Yeah. You got to have, you know, you got to have diverse uh, opinions on stuff, you know, but also it's got to be a respectful and like arena where, we can debate a film's faults and praise its success. It's got to, it's got to come from a place of love or else there's no point to it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we should uh, do a little recap of our top fives and then move on to uh, the individuals that make up Mulholland drive. So my number five is Itchy the killer. Number four, fellowship of the ring. Uh, number three, the Royal Tenenbaums. Number two, E2 Mama Tembien. And number one, Mulholland drive. And uh, my number five was Evolution. Evolution. I forgot. Sorry. Number five, Evolution. Number four, Ocean's Eleven. Number three, Shrek. Number two, Training Day. Number one, The Fellowship of the Ring. Hell yeah. Love that. Love that group. (laughs) Awesome. I love doing these. They're so much fun. Uh, I guess David Lynch is uh, where we should start. Yeah, probably. Because he's kind of the, yeah. He's kind of what you think of when you think of Mulholland Drive. Uh, Mr. Lynch has, has, has a nice little Oscar resume here. Uh, he's nominated for Best Director, Mulholland Drive, 2001, Blue Velvet, 1986, uh, The Elephant, Elephant Man, 1980, and also nominated for a screenplay for The Elephant Man, 1980. So those are nice. Uh, never won for anything of his own actual work, but then he got an honorary award in 2020. And uh, I think that's just because they were like, look, we're not going to give you the actual best director. So here you go. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the weird guy in the like in art class who keeps making like, you know, dark, hard to follow shit. But he's the only one in class who hasn't gotten like a you know best art trophy. So they're like, all right, look here. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, exactly. he's I get people's love for David Lynch. He's. No one else is doing shit like he's doing. I I get that. He, if you want something truly unique, you go to you go to David Lynch. Yeah, there is there. Yeah, it, it's very distinct. You kind of know. You kind of know when you hear like the jazzy music and just odd visuals and kind of kind of amazing acting inside of these ridiculous incoherent stories. Oh, this is David Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know he's been doing what like? He's a he's been doing daily weather reports since 2005. Yeah. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah, they're incredible. He's the man. He's awesome. He 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 has like his own albums that are like he's he like makes music and they're it's actually really good. <laughs> he's fucking bonkers and he he paints like all the time. He has amazing paintings uh, throughout his house and What's like so bizarre about him were these, usually these kind of 
unique artists come from something like like almost traumatic to where they're oh he comes from like a really nice family and is like very grateful for his upbringing and he's just like a wholesome guy when you just watch interviews with him and he's just talking he's so calm and so collected and just kind of like yeah movies are awesome you know <laughs> and you're like what that's the guy that's the dude that's so cool i love i love his interviews when he just he's he's like what he's saying is pretentious but he just does not mean it that way it's so funny it's so funny he can't help it <laughs> i think it would be amazing if we find out that like david lynch is actually like you from the future <laughs> like i wouldn't be surprised uh yeah i mean i, I would love that i'd be okay with that <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I'd be okay with anything involving the Twin Peaks creator. Yeah, it's cool that he, you know, just does what he likes. There's no, you know, there's no pain behind it. There's no, you know, belief in anything. It's just like I felt like making a weird movie about a guy with a mutated baby and weird hair, so I made it. I wanted to see Dennis Hopper drugged up on crazy ether shit, freaking out at Isabella Rossellini. That one, so I did that. And he's just like, he has an idea and he follows it through. That's pretty much what it is. Like, there's no malice yeah. behind it. There's no, like, I'm going to fuck with the audience. It's more just like, let's do that. I mean, nobody's done that before. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he constantly talks about ideas, ideas, ideas. Like, everything is an idea. Everything's about ideas. He says that in a Mulholland Drive interview, uh, he's talking to this guy and the guy asks him about, uh, no, it, the interviewer clearly did his research and, and knows that uh, the the stuff with the background of the Mulholland Drive originally being a, a pilot, and he's like, "Well, how did you come to terms with you know making an ending?" and and David was like, "Well, it was really hard until one night in between six thirty and seven, it just came to me." <laughs> You're like, "What? <laughs> what in the fuck?" Like he was like, he says, "I was just lying down by myself in my bed." And I was just staring at the ceiling and in between 6.30 and 7, it just came to me. Like, that's such an honest <laughs> forward. Yeah, that's what happened. And here we are. That's how we had the movie. <laughs> I love that. I had writer's block until one day I didn't. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> after, after lunch on Wednesday, it's, it all came to me. <laughs> I can't tell if he's fucking with people or he really is just like uh, that narrowed like focused i i love it yeah it's, it's beautiful i love love that guy god his hair is fantastic <laughs> he is really a, something else there's no one else like him on earth it's you know he's the willy wonka of filmmaking there's he's just such an oddball that you just got to respect it I, <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it <laughs> the willy wonka of, of filmmaking uh naomi watts underrated yes underrated so she is somehow some way she was not nominated for her role here in this movie how 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 is that possible how, how could you watch this movie and be like yeah you know no not worth it not worth one of those five spots like it's just kind of it's kind of a joke and i know you and i both thought that so much that when we did our episode uh, uh i think it was on sneak preview where we took out the uh mm -hmm. not no i don't know if we took anything out but we basically were like look how is this one not nominated from each year 2000 to 2009 i think that's what we did 
Yeah. We did it. For, we did it for actor and actress. Mm-hmm. And we both, we both chose Naomi Watts for 2001 for the women. And we were both just kind of like, well, like, this is the definition of like an actor's actress's performance just all over the spectrum and so believable in both, both roles as Betty and Diane, just amazing stuff in this movie. She does have two nominations. Uh, one for, uh, well, sorry, they're both for actress in a lead role, 21 grams, 2003 and the impossible 2012. Uh, 21 grams. I haven't seen in quite some time. The impossibles is pretty it's decent, decent flick, but this is, this is her best work. It's like un, undeniable the the amazing stuff she's doing in Mulholland Drive. Uh, the, again, the dual characters and just her tone, her tone throughout is just perfect. And I I, I think some people could uh, just like Denzel and Training Day. I think some people could really fuck this movie up if they're not on the key that Naomi Watts is on. Yeah, you're not wrong. There's this is a performance of the ages. Uh, which kind of builds gradually. I realized that watching it yesterday is that it starts out kind of soap opera. Her performance is very kind of wooden, but it builds into this snowball of performance that just explodes at the end of the movie. And I don't think I've ever seen that before where an actor kind of starts out slow and just works their way into grounding their performance in a director's strange reality. Yeah. But you kind of have to do that with Lynch. You know, Kyle MacLachlan kind of did the same thing in Twin Peaks, kind of started out a little weird and wooden and then became, you know, Cooper as we progressed. Yeah. You can never like with Lynch, you kind of got to you got to work your way there in more ways than one. Yeah. God. God damn. So good. It's one of my favorite performances of all time. Uh, Love, 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 love what she's doing in Mulholland Driving. And I just like her. If even if she's in kind of like okay movies. I always like watching her. Uh, I was also a huge fan of her in King Kong as a kid uh, from 2005. I just thought she was dynamite in that movie and has this classic Hollywood look, yet she's, yet she's like assertive when she needs to be and holds back when she needs to. Uh, what she's doing in Birdman is fucking unbelievable. The way she holds holds that tone with Edward Norton is like, what, who these two people going head to head is awesome. Is like a special thing to watch. And that movie's fantastic, but she, she's one of my favorite parts of it. I, I think she's dynamite. And I really wish she would have gotten that nom for really wish she would have got the win for Mulholland drive. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that her performance in, um, in the ring really uh, brings that film to a new level. I, th- mm, I think that, you know, yeah, yeah, there's something about that film that works. And I'm, I'm not usually a fan of horror remakes, but that that version of The Ring stands out. And I think she's a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, well, like you said, one of the most underrated actresses. Really, she kind of looks like a like she's she looks like Grace Kelly reincarnated. Yep, it's fucking weird. She does have this old Hollywood look. Uh and I really hope she gets more like she doesn't get a lot of high profile work, which is no. odd. She does a lot of indie stuff, but I'm yeah, waiting she, for her to get some kind of, you know, like, you know, blockbuster or some big name biopic that finally lands her a win. Something. She deserves it. Yeah, I agree. I know she likes to work on the stage and like you said, work do indie movies. So I, I think she's comfortable with what she's doing, but 
she's comfortable with challenging herself like that, but I, I, I do, I'm with you. I would love to see her kind of get that. I don't think she needs a break, but it would be nice to see her get the proper recognition. Like, Oh fuck Naomi Watts in this, you know, big franchise type type thing. That'd be cool. That'd be cool to see her take part in that. Uh, she's awesome, man. I love her to death. Uh, this next guy, uh, I equally love this man to death. Uh, he died just about two years ago, uh, in October of 2019. And is, uh, kind of at this point, a, uh, a staple in my fandom for just entertainment. Um, that's Robert Forster. Uh, Forster was nominated for his role as Max Cherry and Jackie Brown, 1997. Uh, but the dude's just involved in so many of my favorite things. You know, of course, he's in the Twin Peaks Return. Uh, he has one of my favorite roles in Breaking Bad, uh, an awesome, awesome TV show. Uh, worked with Tarantino, worked with Lynch on Mulholland Drive, and he's perfect at the very beginning of the movie when he's just looking out into Los Angeles and you're like, oh, man, Robert Forster is a fucking badass. Uh, he has... One of my favorite heat check performances in any movie I've ever seen, uh, The Descendants in 2011, where he just comes in like guns a blazing and he has this crazy outfit on, this wild, wild look to him. And he just blows me away. Everything he pops up in, uh, I, I kind of fall in love with his particular part. Uh, rest in peace. That guy was awesome. He had such a presence in Breaking Bad that I completely forgot he was only in one episode. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite characters, and it's literally just this guy who's you know selling vacuums. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, so cool. Yeah, yeah. He, he was he's, he was probably my favorite part of El Camino. His interactions with Jesse with just like you know you owe me for the last trip. You, I showed up, you didn't. So that's another two hundred fifty thou. <laughs> and he, he when he calls the cops, he really does call the cops because he's so careful. That there's no like you believe this guy has been in the business for 50 fucking years and he's gonna he's like he's untouchable. Robert Forster has that or he had that gravitas about him. You just you bought it. Anything that he said he was, I believed. He was a fantastic actor. And another guy underappreciated who really only got his due from people like us who appreciated the work. Yeah, that's exactly right, I think. I think when he passed away, people were like, oh, shit, we didn't give him his flowers while he was here. And oh, on cool. the day that El Camino came out, what are the fucking odds of that? Yeah, insane. Yeah. Yeah, that movie doesn't have a lot going for it, but Forrester is definitely the best part. Uh, ah, what, a, what an actor. And what a what a amazing, just totally unique performance as Max Cherry and Jackie Brown. Good God. Uh, that's my favorite screen character for Tarantino. Uh is Max Cherry. Uh, you know, he's got, he's got some good ones, you know, Hans Landa and, and Aldo Rain and, you know, Jules and all these different, all these different guys that, that Tarantino's come up with Rick fucking Dalton, Cliff Booth. Uh, no, no one tops Max Cherry, the subtle, subtle bail bondsman who's just caught up in the, in the mix. Uh, I love that movie. God. Yeah. Jackie Brown's Tarantino's most, most underrated film, I think. And it's just, a, it's a gem. Like, like everything he's done, it's a gem. There's so much to, to dig into there. Just, you know, I think it's one of my favorite Sam Jackson performances. Pam Greer's fantastic. The soundtrack is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. 
De Niro it, is great. Yeah. Yeah. Just Michael Keaton, even as you know, the ATF oh. agent who's just like he knows what's going on, but he can't prove it. It's oh, it's great. Yeah. The stakes of that movie, it being it's like three hundred thousand dollars. The stakes of it, the understanding from the performances, uh, and the music choices are just they're just spot spot on and uh tarantino's like outdoing himself and that's saying a lot uh, he that, that movie kicks ass uh, that'll definitely pop up on the show one day that's for sure <laughs> uh last performer maybe maybe saving the best for last year uh miss lee grant has been nominated four times and has one win she has a small role here in mohan drive as uh, louise the uh, crazy neighbors <laughs> that's living at the apartment complex that uh, Naomi Watts, uh, Betty is living at during, during the dream part of the movie. Uh, and she's, she's saying like, Oh, something's very wrong here. Something's very wrong. It's a very creepy scene, very wild. And, and then you have Coco come up and say, Oh, Louise, I'll take you home. Well, Lee Grant, four nominations, one win uh, detective story, 1951 best actress in a supporting role nominated uh 1970 the landlord best actress in a supporting role nominated uh shampoo great movie 1975 wins for best actress best actress in a supporting role and then finally 1976 voyage of the damned nominated for best actress in a, in a best actress in a supporting role so pretty impressive uh it's the most decorated person we have here on the on the list <laughs> and it's lee grant who's not in the movie very much but uh that is one of the things that goes to show with Lynch, people just wanted to work with him and still do and always will and always have because they know it's going to be a once in a lifetime kind of, kind of deal. And if you're lucky, you'll get, you'll get another, another movie where he wants you. Not only that, but I got to give Lynch credit where it's due. He writes characters so fucking well. Yeah. And I get why an actor would want to be a part of one of his projects, even if it's for a scene because they're going to have a neat character to add to their resume and they're going to get a chance to stretch their chops like they never had before. And that's exciting. Straight up. Straight up. That's exactly right. Uh, God, I love it. I love it so much. I love talking about these people. Those are the only three performers we have today, but we got one more guy I want to talk about. Uh, and this was a absolute revelation. I couldn't believe I didn't know this until I looked it up. I was like, who's the... It's like, who's the production designer for this movie? Because this, this, you know, this this movie kicks ass. And it's it's fucking Jack Fisk. <laughs> Jack Fisk is Ooh. the production designer of The Master, There Will Be Blood, uh, The Tree of Life, The Revenant. Movies I'm just obsessed with. Uh, the, the Thin Red Line, Terrence Malick. This guy is my guy. And I had no idea that he was, <laughs> he was the person behind Mulholland Drive and just the way it's set up and looks. Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't really even know what to say. He's he's a guy that if you get on board, your movie's going to look really impressive. Your movie's going to look authentic. Your movie's going to have a certain atmosphere to it, a certain vibe to it. He is he's the man. And uh, two nominations for uh, Art Direction, There Will Be Blood, 2007, and uh, Production Design, 2015 for The Revenant. I... Yeah, I don't really know. He's one of those resumes you just you look at and you're like, holy hell, this guy means business. He's not just like working for the hell of it. He's uh he's trying to work with specific people, Terrence Malick, Paul Tom Sanderson, David Lynch. 
Alejandro Iñárritu. Uh, I just I, like what more could you want from a guy? Damn. Uh, <laughs> so we finally have someone who connects all of your favorite filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, all you need uh, the tree of life. That's my my favorite part of that movie is is how how Texan it, it is and Terrence Malick speaking with Jack Fisk, uh, two people who understand the state and understand kind of how it feels growing up here, uh, especially in like a small town. And they just fucking nailed it. Every little piece and the master and there will be blood. Like these Paul Thomas Anderson kind of elite movies that are on a different, different type of field than, you know, Boogie Nights and Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. These are like very, very serious movies that would demand people's attention. You know, not everyone's going to love all of Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson's work, but those are the two that people point to like, Holy shit. These are masterpieces. And I think Jack Fisk has a lot to do with that. Yeah. And he's going to add Scorsese to his resume too. Cause he's yeah. working on killers of the flower moon right now. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> that's fucking, fucking awesome. Hell, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's, wow. it's great. It's great. Realizing those things, you know, um, he's, He's he's a production designer, art director, does all kinds of different things. So just to give just to give a few more movies, he's the art director in for Carrie, nineteen seventy six. Uh, come on, Days of Heaven, nineteen seventy eight, Terrence Malick, Badlands, nineteen seventy three, uh, Cool Breeze, nineteen seventy two, and Angels Heart as They Come, nineteen seventy one. Fucking hell, this guy's this guy's crazy. He's he's one of my one of those guys I've been waiting. I can't wait till he pops up on this show. You know, I can't wait. We finally. Had the chance, and I didn't even know it for Mulholland Drive. I'm so glad I looked at the fucking production designer and, and made that connection. That this is also the guy that's that's worked on so many movies that I love, and those names become really important to you. You know, just like just like a you know Emmanuel Lubisky, cinematographer, or Roger Deakins, or like a composer. You mentioned Howard Shore. Like those names become very important to you when you start connecting the dots. And uh, Jack Fisk, he's the man. Yeah, he's that's God. The, the stories this guy must have, the, the the productions he's been a you know a fly on the wall, yeah, to witness. I, I well, that's, guess who? Guess who he's married to? Who? Sissy Spacek. <laughs> Fucking hell! Wow! <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, they've they've been they've been married since before Carrie. Yeah, nineteen seventy four. Yeah. Wow. Oh man, that's isn't that crazy? <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love these little, you know, fucking, you know, two degrees like connections that all these people have. It's crazy. No, it's beautiful. It's a hell of a thing. Uh that's a great way to finish off our individuals for the episode. Uh David Lynch, Nami Watts, Robert Forster, Lee Grant, and Jack Fisk. Really, really unique group, which would make sense for something like Mulholland Drive. Uh, I, I want to look at the 74th Academy Awards before we do our awards because, um, yeah, it was only up for Best Director, but we, we know a lot, a lot of these movies, and I kind of want to just look at it for fun. After all, they all hit their 20th anniversary at some point during 2021, and I think it's fun to kind of just honor films from, from that ceremony and talk about them a little bit. We can talk about the Best Picture category, and if we think Mulholland Drive should be in there. So uh, 
where where would you like to kind of kind of glance at first? Do you want to go ahead and knock out the best director category or might as well? Think? I think yeah. we might as well because that was its one nomination, which probably Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so for best director 2001, we've got Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down, Robert Altman for Gosford Park, Peter Jackson for The Fellowship of the Ring, David Lynch for Mulholland Drive, and the winner Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. That is a loaded five directors right there. Jesus Christ. There's so much legacy in that, in those five names. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hard to pick a winner there. My God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and what's crazy is I think they missed uh, Todd Field, director of In the Bedroom. Like Todd Field directs the piss out of In the Bedroom. That movie is fucking bonkers good. And I don't know who you take out. I guess I, I, this is hard for me to say, but I'd probably take Robert Altman out. Uh, either him or Ron Howard. I don't know. That's really hard. I, Black Hawk Down's awesome. Really, Scott is just a fucking genius. Lynch, there's no way you're taking him out. Peter Jackson, fucking give him the, the award. Come on. You know, uh, Fellowship is Fellowship is franchise meets filmmaking. You know, it's like this is incredible stuff inside of IP. And uh, anytime you can do that, it's really special. This is this is a good group. Yeah, I just found out that Peter Jackson is actually Sir Peter Jackson. Did you know that? Ah, no. When did that happen? Um, he's been it, knighted in um in 2012. Ah, cool. <laughs> he was knighted um by the a member of the Order of New Zealand. Wow, uh, that's fantastic. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't yeah. that be a cool feeling? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so I have not seen Black Hawk Down yet, so I can't, uh, can't speak for Ridley Scott here. Uh, honestly, I think A Beautiful Mind is a bit overrated. I, I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's amazing. Uh, yeah, extremely overrated. Uh, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think Ron Howard probably should have taken the director for Apollo 13. Mm. Uh. And for this, yeah, probably. I think PJ should have gotten a three-year streak for a director, which would have yeah. been really cool. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree there. Um, Peter Jackson and also uh, Fellowship should win Best Picture here over a Beautiful Mind, and Two Towers should should have beaten Chicago. Uh, that's just that's just how we feel. Uh, but this is this is a great great group of films. Um, Gosford Park. Robert Altman, not my favorite Altman, but great, great movie. Really entertaining. Uh, a lot of fun, re really rewarding as just kind of a movie fan to watch that one. But uh, I stand by in the bedroom. It just should be somewhere in that category. Uh, that's a, that's a Oscar bait movie that went right. That was like, no, we're, we're, we're like, we're, we're actually on that level. We can actually do this. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking through the, uh, the ceremony here and yeah there's this was a really 2001 was a great year for film uh stuff that i've forgotten about it's cool yeah yeah i think i think ali uh michael mann's uh muhammad ali movie starring will smith is is awesome uh moulin rouge is is pretty damn good we spoke about training day already monsters ball for halle berry that's when denzel gives his famous speech of you know knock two birds out with one stone because they gave uh, gave Halle Berry and him uh, the you know really important Oscars that night, and he's like, "Ha ha ha! I see what you guys did here." 
you know, now, now, now you can go another fucking 20 years without respecting us. And uh, that's, uh, it, it's that I think Denzel knew exactly what he was doing in that moment. It's really sad, but he was, he was having fun with it, which I was, that is so Denzel to just be like, look, this ultimately isn't important. What's important is the work. And the people who know the work will understand what's good and what isn't, you know? And I love that. I love that, that awareness from him. Uh, I'm really glad he beat Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind. Cause that's just not my kind of, not my bag of, you know, bag of tricks, that kind of performance. Uh, how about, have you seen Iris Murdoch? Uh, Iris, I have not seen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's Kate Winslet as Iris Murdoch. Sorry. Yeah. Iris, that's also uh, Judy Dench. I, I got to see that movie. Yeah. That's Jim Broadbent's win. I definitely yeah. would like to see that. Um, there's a lot here I've got to see. Uh, looking through my 2001 letterbox list, I've, I've seen so much shit that I really haven't watched a lot of the good ones. Uh, yeah, Black Hawk Down, Monsters Ball. Uh, even you know, I might want to take a gander at Bridget Jones' Diary. I've had, I mean, I don't really know why it's here, but maybe. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of that one, but that's just not my kind of movie. I do like Memento. <laughs> yeah, Memento's good. I've, I've lost a lot of respect for Christopher Nolan over the past year, but I'm, uh, I still like the work. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think, I think he's a good filmmaker i think he just gets overrated by by uh by the masses uh harry potter and the sorcerer's stone the first fucking harry potter how about that i just shame that all eight of those films were like given some technical nominations but never a win fantastic beasts got a costume design win that was the one win this franchise has uh that's that's upsetting that's ridiculous i mean for sorcerer's stone i'm glad john williams got the nomination for score uh, but I think like, I'm trying to think of like who in there, if I was going to give a nomination for like supporting actor, supporting actress, who would, who would warrant it? And Alan Rickman. Yeah. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> that would be so cool. And honestly, I think, you know, Ian Hart as Coral, I think is underrated. You know, the, he has to play kind of a bumbling idiot the whole time, but with like this air of, sin- you know, a sinister air. I think it's, it's cool. I like, you know, the hidden villain who's not really, you know, you don't know that the villain until the third act. I, I like that trope. Yeah, me too. I love, I love that, especially as when you're a kid, it stretches your imagination greatly. Uh, oh. I think, I think, uh, I think Ray Fiennes is like unbelievably good as Voldemort and probably should have gotten some recognition at some point during that run. Uh, I will stand by that. Best supporting actor, 2005, Goblet of Fire. That yeah. bit where he like his return alone. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, is that scary? And and that's he, and that's Robert Pattinson, who you damn know is going to win an Oscar at some point. You know. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah he's going to wow us as Batman, and that's just going to open further doors. You know, finally, you know, Batman's going to be the final stake in Edward Cullen's heart, and the world it will is. finally see Pattinson as more than just a sparkly vampire. Yeah, it won't it won't just be us who have seen, you know, Good Time and the Lighthouse, you know, like people who know that they know yeah, this guy's got chops. Like he's oh, yeah, he's fucking good. He's a good actor. Devil all the time. Yeah, that guy's that guy's kicks ass. I cannot wait to hear his I'm Batman. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not wearing hockey pads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fuck. I, I love, I, I, I love real, Batman. real quick. Yeah, me too. I, I'm going to tell a real quick story about Batman. 
Um, last weekend, I went on a, a little little vacation, little trip. It was a bachelor party, but very not the definition of a bachelor party. We went to a random house out in the middle of nowhere and just kind of hung out, drank some beers, hung around a fire, uh, yelled at the moon, shit like that. You know, we were just being, we were being hooligans is what we were doing. And there's one night where me and my buddy, uh, there were six of us, or yeah, six of us total. And me and my buddy uh, were talking about our friend's wedding. And that guy's name is Harvey. We had gone to it like a month ago. And when I said Harvey, there's one guy who is pretty drunk. And he said, where is she? <laughs> Just because I said Harvey. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he goes, Harvey Dent, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I can't handle this. <laughs> uh, it was it was unbelievable. I was so happy when he, he screamed at me. Where is she? <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it was such a random, like he wasn't, a part of the conversation at all, but he just kind of overheard the word, the name Harvey and took it to those, took it to those lengths. Uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love accidental Batman in the wild. Always yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So from then on out, the rest of the trip, we kept saying like, where is she? <laughs> like, Oh, this guy. So fucking ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Batman's great. Or Pattinson's going to be great. Then uh, how do we get there? Uh, Pattinson, Ray Fiennes, Harry Potter, Best Supporting Actor, Sorcerer Stone, Best Score nomination. There we go. Best Score, 74th Academy Awards. <laughs> Podcast, Oscar Sunday. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, 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 way, the way the brains can move when they're talking about movies. I love it. Um, is there anything else you want to look at with this? Uh, oh, fucking Pearl Harbor. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I've yet it, to sit through that three-hour train wreck. I have no um, interest. Yeah. It's not good. Uh, you don't need to do that to yourself uh, unless you're just just dying to. Uh, oh, look at this. Academy of Honorary Awards for Sidney Poitier and Robert Redford. Those are two decent names. <laughs> that is, that's neat. I remember I saw, you know, Denzel's uh, speech. Where he's like he's been chasing Sidney Poitier his whole career and they give him an honorary award the same night they give Denzel Best Actor. <laughs> god damn <laughs> oh that's great i just bought guess who's coming to dinner I, I found it randomly out in the wild and now it's mine what yeah beautiful that movie. was that's uh 1967 1968 67 yeah Seven. great great movie that's right it's the same year as in the heat of the night isn't it or is it a year after oh I, man i know we i watched i watched that for prep for in the heat of the night but was it Sidney Poitier prep or was it Oscars prep? <laughs> I don't oh, remember. it is 1967. So, yeah, they're both. Yeah. God, Sydney. what a year, Sydney. My God. Sydney, stop it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's great. I, I love looking at these these ceremonies because then, you know, you can go on Robert Pattinson and Batman tangents and Sydney and Denzel and Robert Altman and Peter Jackson and all these different people. So before we move on, for sure, you think Peter Jackson deserves the best director. I do. Yes. Okay. What he did with Middle Earth still is unrivaled in film. I think it's amazing. I think it's an achievement that I think he's still writing. Like he, he, he's the guy yeah. who made Lord of the Rings. He honestly could retire and just live on that. But I'm hoping, you know, he his track record lately hasn't been great, but I'm hoping for a, a little, you know, a little something, a little something new. 
yeah, you, you forgive a lot of the fluff when you've done, like you said, when you've done, you tackled middle earth. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think fellowship best picture and Peter Jackson, best director. Is it my favorite again? No, obviously Mulholland drive, what Dave Lynch is doing, what he does as a, as a person. But I talked a lot about this on episode 70 when we did uh, the showdown and I had a Clockwork Orange, a movie I like better than Last Picture Show. I just have a hard time. Well, actually, I'm starting to have a, a, an easier time now separating my kind of fandom and ego with, okay, what deserves to be kind of represented for the year? Yeah, And I, I, I think Fellowship and Peter Jackson for the year 2001 just makes a lot of sense. I'm really glad Lynch is here, though. I've, I've heard him talk during you know, uh, when the movie was coming out and him talking about, there's just no way, there's no way I'm going to get nominated for best director. Like there's no way, there's no way the Academy is not going to do it. And they did, they did. They, they took that bait. <laughs> they, they, they fucking gave him a, gave him a nomination. But uh, I think other than that, I would love to see it in the best picture group. Of course, that'd be really cool. But I think it's just a, a damn shame. Naomi Watts isn't here. I think that's the big one that makes zero sense to me. If you're going to have lunch there and the best director, then you've got to have Naomi Watts uh, for best actress. Cause she just doesn't, doesn't totally carry the movie, but she does. And I love, love when a performer does that. I think uh, Angelo Badalamenti deserves a nomination for score. And, and what a cool performance from him too. Yeah. As a gangster. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> this is the girl. <laughs> Good choice, <laughs> sir. Like just, yeah. Who'd have thought? I, that his like go-to composer guy could also play a very threatening gangster. Yeah, yeah he's <laughs> a- Angelo has been nominated for three Emmys, all for Twin Peaks, <laughs> all for different things involving Twin Peaks. And I I agree with you. I think I think this score is crazy, crazy good. And then there's pits of the soundtrack that are great too. Uh, I love love when a movie does that. Yeah, best of both worlds. Uh, you mentioned production design. I think that he had uh, Mr. Fisk had a shot here at a nomination. Yep. Um, and film editing, I think. Uh, that's Mary Sweeney, I believe. Yeah, awesome stuff. Yeah. I think this could have gotten a little bit more technical attention. I'm surprised it didn't. Yeah, Mary Sweeney, editor. I think uh, Peter Deming, cinematographer. Yeah, I think all those things could have could have gotten noms, and I obviously wouldn't be complaining. Uh, that the only reason we can do it on this show is because Mr. Lynch. That's it. Um, only takes one. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's all it takes. Some some of the best movies we've done on here. You know, Fight Club has one. Uh, Mulholland Drive. Uh, what else have we done that has one? Uh, Monsieur Verdoux. That was one. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Good call. Nineteen forty-two or no? Nineteen forty-seven. Yeah. Seven. Rango. For, <laughs> Rango. Yeah. Best, yeah. Just best animated. Yeah. Ah, some great movies. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, I love it. I was thinking about Mulholland Drive before we get to our awards uh, and finish the show off. Uh, I've been very, very lucky, very, very fortunate, I think, even to be able to do so many of my, you know, top 25 to 50 favorite movies of all time on this show. Uh, We're 72 episodes in and I keep getting to choose movies that I just adore and I'm obsessed with. You know, like uh, Boogie Nights and Moonlight and Rango and Mining the Gaff and Mulholland Drive and Chinatown. Uh, these movies that I'm just 
I need in my life. You know, once I've seen them, I need them there. I need them. They're like my friends. And I feel so lucky to be able to do that. And Mulholland's right up the top of that list. You know, it's one of my very, very favorites. There's not a lot of, again, I, I said this earlier, there's not a lot of movies that can rival it in my mind. Uh, but some of those that I named are, are in that conversation. And that's, that's, that's like, a, that's like a fucking blessing to be able to do that. Talk about the art you truly, truly care about and love and kind of go to war with, you know, you're like, this is, this is mine. This is my shit. <laughs> this, is, this is a, and Mulholland is like, I knew it right away. Knew it right away. When I first watched it, like five, six, I, I can't even remember when, 2000, 2015, I think is when I first watched it. So yeah, I was 20. I was just like, yeah, this is, I feel like this is made for me. <laughs> and a lot of people feel that way. And uh, that's, a, that's a cool feeling when you're kind of in a, in a cult of people that are obsessed with one thing. Uh, our awards. If you've been here before, you know exactly what we're doing. We have the Tarantino Award for the best quote or line of the film. We have the Ennio Morricone for the best music moment. We have the Philip Seymour Hoffman Award for the best performance of the movie. And we have the Roger Deakins Award for the best scene or moment, however you want to look at it, uh, uh, of, the, of the film. So let's have some fun, man. Take it away. Um, my Tarantino comes from uh, the scene between Adam and the so-called cowboy. Okay. Thank you. We haven't brought up Adam yet. What a great fucking character. <laughs> Justin Thoreau. I've never really looked into him. I knew the name, but I, he's a guy I've never explored because I never really cared. Uh, but his arc in this film is so odd. From getting knocked out by fucking Billy Ray Cyrus, who's fucking his wife. Yeah. <laughs> to being forced to by the mob to put an actress he doesn't want into his movie. From having to deal with the cowboy. And not, and clearly being a smartass about it, just what the hell is going on here? <laughs> you can see that this was supposed to be a show from the the tangents, the little subplots that like clearly this was going to go somewhere in yes. his wider vision, or maybe not. I don't fucking know. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, that could have been it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. yeah, just the image of Billy Ray Cyrus being like, you don't talk like that to a lady and then punching him in the kitchen. <laughs> That's like my favorite little bit of casting in this movie is Billy Ray Cyrus just being like, look away, man. It's better that way. <laughs> I had to have a moment of like, wait a minute. Like, that can't be. What? I looked it up. I'm like, holy shit. It's Billy Ray. You can't Why mistake that mullet. Yeah. Can't mistake that mullet. He's so good. Adam is that perspective if you took that singular perspective in this film you know he's completely at technically diane's will this is diane's dream and she's made up this you know she's made up this alter ego betty who's actually a successful actress and clearly with her reality of adam being with the woman she loves in reality she's made up this crazy plot line in her head in her dream where he he's this hot new director and then gets totally fucked and doesn't ha doesn't basically doesn't have his creative rights and she oh. basically takes that away from him in her dream so fucking fascinating <laughs> and he and why the fuck is he carrying around a golf club like <laughs> i love when he smashes the guy's window windshield after the meeting and then he drives off and 
like you said, he catches his wife cheating and he puts pink paint all over her, all over her jewelry. His ride is so wild. <laughs> that scene where he tears the windshield up with a golf club, that was apparently based on a real event that Jack Nicholson uh, was involved in. Oh, perfect. Uh, he's, yeah, he got really pissed one time and smashed the shit out of someone's windshield. I think he paid for it and was like, I'm sorry. But he became known as like the Mulholland man after that. That's wonderful. Um, and I love to think that during Betty's dream, fucking achy breaky heart came on the radio somewhere. And that's why Billy Ray Cyrus is the guy fucking his wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Perfect. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. It's so odd. Uh, that was my, um, my Roger Deakins for a bit. <laughs> Billy Ray versus Adam just because yeah. of how odd and hilarious it was. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's so funny. I love that. I love that bit. I love, I love that Lynch has that, that humor in him where there's little bits of the film where you're just like, what? It feels almost Coen brothers. Like you're like, wait, what the fuck is this? <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so my line comes from when Adam meets the, the cowboy, this guy, the whole time he's like, like the cowboy, like, what do I have to take a horse to the ranch? Like, what is this? <laughs> and, the guy shows up in full cowboy outfit with a hat and Adam's like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like the whole time he's like, really dude. And the guy can tell. And he's like, you know, think, stop being a smart ass and think. But what he says is I love how non, like how vaguely threatening this is, but you know, it's a promise. When you see the girl in the picture that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That's up to you but the choice for that lead girl is not up to you. Now you will see me one more time. If you do good, you will see me two more times. If you do bad, good night. And he just walks away. And Adam's like, the fuck just happened. He still can't believe this crazy ass day he's having, but just the cowboy who's like, you know, do good. And you'll see me again. I probably give you a thumbs up. You see me, you do bad. I will kill you. Like, that's yeah. basically what he's saying. Like, my goons will show up, we'll break your legs, and we'll put a bullet in your head. I love that. I love that because that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite little things you can catch in Mulholland Drive is the truth in that those words. You see the cowboy again because he's the one who wakes up Diane, says it's time to wake up. And then you see him again in the background at uh, Adam's party later on in the film. So you're like, okay, wait, she saw him twice. She did bad. <laughs> she do, she do bad. <laughs> I love, I love that shit. And that, that part is so weird and so bizarre. The, you know, like his, his reaction to Cynthia, uh, who he's on the phone with Adam. And he's like, like you were saying, he's like, okay, like, do I need to get my fucking chaps on? Like what the fuck is going on? You know? And he just, he just rolls with these. Like, I guess I'll need him. And then him calling him a smart aleck is one of my favorite decisions in the screenplay. Because if he was, you know, you're just like, oh, you're being a fucking prick. He could be really uh, verbally aggressive. But the fact that he says, you're not thinking, you're too busy being a smart aleck. It sounds like my grandpa, you know, like, (laughs) what is this? And I I love that decision. And that scene is always makes me laugh, but also kind of scared. And that's, ah, love that feeling. Yeah, it's like this guy walked right out of fucking gun smoke. But also, you know, this is Hollywood. These kinds of people are just around. There's no, 
rhyme or reason to that city. It's just what it is. And it's just bonkers. You just got to take it a day at a time and just accept that this could be the day where you run into a cowboy <laughs> and just go with that. It, like Lynch and Hollywood are the perfect union. It just, yes. it works. And I think that's, that's if this had been set in any other city, if this had been about anything else, I would probably hate this movie. But it's because it's Hollywood that I can just be like, yeah, of course that would happen in Tinseltown. Why not? Like, yeah, it just works. Yeah. Movies, movies about movies. I love them. <laughs> so cool. Oh, man, I love that. I, I definitely flirted with some of that dialogue uh, for my Tarantino, just that, that, that oddness and that, you know, the movie's going to turn somewhere. You're like, oh, I, I feel like this is actually... I feel like these words are of actual value. What the cowboy is saying to Adam. It's just, just perfect. And Justin Thoreau. Thoreau or Thoreau? I've never known how to say it. I think it's Thoreau. I'm that, pretty that, sure it's that Thoreau. That sounds right. Yeah, Thoreau. Who I actually really like in uh, the HBO show, The Leftovers. Like, he's really good in that show, but I, I don't have a whole lot to say about him. He's, he's really good in this movie. It's a play. It looks like a play on, you know, the modern director's, he honestly looks like Paul Thomas Anderson on the Boogie Nights set. That's like what he looks like with the, sometimes he's wearing like a, uh, you know, black jacket, black, you know, pants and like these weird sunglasses and spiked up hair. <laughs> You're like, he's, he's supposed to be this kind of hot shot director who's got his own vision. And I think Lynch is not necessarily putting that as like, oh, this is, this is like representing me. But there are aspects of a filmmaker that you can't deny, you know, being a filmmaker being denied by ABC for your pilot and being controlled. I, I just, I, I think that stuff is right there. It's like yeah. kind of on the nose and I, I love that stuff. Great. He's, he's great in this movie. Yeah. I'm sure early on in his career, David Lynch, I, I mean, we see that with like Dune, a film that he, you know, erased from his filmography because of how they kind of took it away from him. And yeah. he's been told by many times early on, you know, you can't do this. This is weird. Like, why would you, the audience isn't going to care about this. Like, no, we're not going to pay for that. So he's, yeah. I, I can totally see him adding that into a film about Hollywood itself. Yeah, 100%. Very cool. Uh, I've also got kind of a, a thinker, uh, this, this bit of dialogue from, from Betty Elms, uh, Naomi Watts. Uh, earlier in the film, it's uh, her and Rita are kind of trying to figure out what to do about Rita's identity since she doesn't really know what's going on. She doesn't know why she has this money in her purse. She's very confused. Uh, And they're about to kind of go out into Hollywood, into Los Angeles. And it seems like this huge task, like, oh, we're about to go out into the city, you know, because they're kind of stuck in that apartment for a while in the beginning of the movie. And Betty Alms says, it'll be just like in the movies, pretending to be somebody else. Oh man, <laughs> I love that so much because it's another another on the nose. Like, as a viewer and as someone, or if you are someone who watches a lot of movies, you know you just you just are waiting for this kind of stuff. You catch this stuff, these little twists and turns within the dialogue. Uh, and when you know the ending, that Diane is dreaming all of this at the beginning, you're just like, holy shit! You know the the stuff that Betty is saying is can be taken to a whole nother level because this is all within her mind as she's asleep and this is kind of a a place she's created an atmosphere she's created and so pretending to be somebody else you know that's funny that's just 
that's just it's it's just fucking meta you know yeah. and it's uh it kind of represents the film itself and kind of the the idea you have if you're about to move out i'm going out to hollywood i'm gonna i'm going to become an actor you know and just the simple idea of it'll be just like in the movies like it's this magical thing where you pretend to be somebody else and people throw money at you when really it's this it's this business and it's this doggy dog type of thing that most people are not going to last in. And I, I love that Diane does not last in it, but she wants to believe that it's just this simple thing that you can come and do. Uh, it's so cool. Yeah. I feel, you know, pity for anyone who thinks they, they can just fly to LA and be discovered. Like it's that easy. Like, you know, you're going to serve a latte to some producer and he's going to be like, I like the cut of your jib. How do you want to star in the next Marvel movie? Like, that's not how it works. And it's just, it's devastating to people who have that, you know, have their eyes open forcefully in Hollywood. And uh, I got more about that later. Uh, but uh, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, what's your, uh, any more Coney? Here's, here's later. Um, Perfect. Later is now. <laughs> There's this little bit of the score uh, when Betty first arrives and the camera pans up to the Hollywood sign. And mm. instead of, you know, this, you know, the bright lights kind of it's Hollywood, like every other movie does. There is a dark foreboding in Battle of Menti's score there telling you basically like, hey, Tinseltown isn't real. This is Los Angeles. This is where dreams are broken. Yeah. And this is not, you know this ain't La La Land. Like this is going to hurt. <laughs> and I like knowing, you know, like kind of signifying that to the audience of Hollywood's seedy underbelly and the shit that gets, you know, the, the underhanded deals that make movies happen and just the dark side of Hollywood that doesn't really get reported because Hollywood's the one making the fucking movies. Yep. And uh, Lynch of all people would go there. He, he would have, you know, his whole career has been, like, his best stuff has been showing the dark side of small town America. We see that with Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet. He is so good at exposing the secrets. And he did that to Hollywood in Mulholland yeah. Drive. He did, he showed the, the small town psycho secrets of Hollywood. And I fucking love that about Mulholland Drive. That's my favorite thing about this movie is how Lynch portrays Hollywood. Uh, enough said. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. Uh, taking on the beast itself is very cool. Very rock and roll. Very, very, very cool for someone like him to do and do it just with creativity flowing out of him. Very cool. A Angelo's score is something to behold in this movie. I think he's a guy that's at that, like kind of at the top of my list of when that sound hits, I'm just, oh, like, yes, here we are. Here we fucking go, you know? Whether whether it be just that opening, you know, Twin Peaks intro, or like you said, that kind of droning, like, Whoa, and you're about to go into Hollywood. It's just just epic. He, he, his touch is so valuable on, on, on Lynch's stuff. And then his role is great. His role in, in the film is great. You know, this is the girl. I love when he spits the coffee out. I love that shit so much. And that guy's like, what? We were told this is one of the finest espressos in the world. It's just fucking disgusting. <laughs> oh, I love that. That meeting scene. Uh, who is it? Uh, 
Dan, what is his last name? Yeah, Dan Hedaya. He's like, it is no longer your film. <laughs> so good. Oh, I love that scene. And Adam's like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> she is not in my film. <laughs> oh, man. I love that. Love that so much. Uh, my Enyo goes to, uh, funny enough, the the there's a, a bit right after Adam leaves and he's driving to uh to his house and that's where he finds his wife cheating and then uh starts looking for the pink paint in the garage and then puts it on the the jewelry there's a song playing called the beast by milt buckner and it is pure lynch it's clearly a lunch choice just slow a little bit of snare a little bit of jazz jazz uh brass going on and you're kind of like this doesn't match this doesn't make any sense but it makes all of the sense, you know, when you're when you're inside of Mulholland Drive, inside the, the experience that it is as a movie. It just I, I love when he does that. I love when Lynch is like, like combats whatever it is, some kind of like evil supposed to be like, oh, what the hell is supposed to be this huge turning point in the film. But there's just this kind of whimsical jazz playing in the background. Like, I love that. Whereas I equally love when he plays super dark shit. Angelo basically playing super dark shit over something that we're used to being big, bright, and all over the place. Uh, I love those decisions to just totally counter. Sometimes it's that simple with Lynch. It's not, it's not anything crazy. It's just doing exactly opposite of what we're used to. And he, that's how he gets it out of you. And you're like, Oh geez. Yeah. That, that was cool. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Uh, definitely Lynch is good at serving you exactly what you are not expecting. He yeah. does that throughout his career, uh, except for his biopics, which are oddly straightforward. I've always thought that was strange. Like the elephant man in the straight story, exactly what they say they're going to be <laughs> linear. Well acted. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think I it's funny. Those. Oh, they're great movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, uh, I love that whole bit. Just, the pettiness of like finding a can of pink paint to ruin all of her jewelry. And like, not even like he doesn't like say anything. He just, his first instinct is I'm going to kill this jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's it. And then he gets, and he gets punched in the face. Then he gets back in the car and leaves. I love that the yeah. wife's reaction isn't like, Oh God, you caught me. It's what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. Why are you even here? Yeah. You're supposed to be in a meeting. He's like, well, actually my film was basically just stolen from me. Yeah. <laughs> So good, so good, and that's all. That's all uh, an imagination from Diane, who's like, "I fucking hate this guy." <laughs> I'm gonna make this little, you know, little bit of hell in his world. <laughs> so good. That's cool. um, this next one. I think we're on the same page. Uh, the Philip Seymour. Oh, maybe not. Okay, the Philip Seymour Hoffman Award. What do you got? I don't have Naomi Watts. Oh no! Who is it? It's Laura Herring. Okay, that's I'm I'm cool with that. Rita and Camilla, great performance. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Naomi Watts isn't lights out in this. She is, but Laura Herring I think has a tougher job here, playing okay. you know an amnesiac okay. and then a like a starlet. Um, and I think she does a great job as both. I love this kind of like 
accidental innocence about her character in the first half of the film where like she's probably done some fucked up dark shit. I mean, you wouldn't have a purse full of hundred dollar bills if you're not into some bad shit, but because she's lost her memory, she's like a frightened little girl and she has to kind of find her way back. And I love that counterpoint to Naomi Watts's, you know, confident, you know, middle America, I'm going to be a star Hollywood wannabe. Uh, so I decided to throw her a bone and award her the PSH because I knew you were going Naomi Watts. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Naomi, Naomi takes it for me. Uh, to, yeah. Uh, fuck. I do wish Laura Harry would have been nominated, uh, whether, whether it be also best actress or supporting whatever no. you want to give it. I think, I think Naomi Watts, I think, I think it's the moment when you first see her, uh, when she opens the door for her neighbor in the second part of the film and the neighbor like comes over to get the lamps and, or the lamp and the dishes and you're just like, holy shit, how is this the same person? Uh, that just f- floors me every time and all the way up until her shooting herself, you know, uh, at the end of the film. That, that last like 30 minutes is such a ride and she is totally in the driver's seat. Uh, even though the narrative is not she like Naomi Watts is like fucking on blast right there and just destroying it. And then, and then I I'm with you where they both uh, Laura and Naomi are both just so good at committing and making it believable, both, both style, both styles, you know, doing both characters. God, I love that about this movie that they nail both, both parts of the film. Uh, I think I think every performance in this movie is really good, but those two are just kind of a level level above. Uh, Justin Throw is awesome. Uh, I think, I think you know, the, like those little bits of you know, like Robert Forster, they're just really strong, really strong and believable, committed performances. But there's th- these two are kind of like in the film the whole time, and they they definitely do their best job of carrying it. So I love it, man. I thought for sure it'd be Naomi for you, uh, but. I like how you kind of hid that the whole episode up until now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I've gotten good at deceiving you on, on this show. <laughs> um, I want to give a shout out to Mark Pellegrino, who, uh, yeah. as yeah. Uh, Joe... I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> He's just such a great actor who really shines in so much that I like. I loved him in, in uh, Supernatural. I loved him in Lost. I loved him in Dexter. Uh, I loved him in Capote and he's just such a fantastic character actor who I really don't think gets enough attention, but always does a great job. And I, I always love giving him props whenever I can, whenever I can. His scene in this is fucking hilarious. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I'll just, okay. I'll do the same thing before we get to the Deacons, Patrick Fischler as Dan. And he's the, he's the guy telling the dream sequence and winkies. <laughs> what an awesome scene. I just wanted to come here, <laughs> here to Winkies. No, this is Winkies. <laughs> and then he describes exactly what happens, you know, and you're like, what, what, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what am I watching? That's one of the most incredible scenes I've ever seen in a film. It just, it just comes out of left field and is at this diner. I love diner scenes. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a sucker for those and the Winkies, on Sunset Boulevard, it's just like, okay, I got to go there. 
<laughs> I gotta fucking go to this place because I love that scene so much, you know, and kind of the creepiness of it as they go outside, downstairs, and around the wall. But I love that, love that scene so much. And Pac- Patrick Fischler has such a unique look, such a unique, you know, his eyes, his face, the way he describes his his dreams uh, to Herb. Really cool, really really cool stuff. So yeah, everybody's great. Brent Briscoe at the beginning with uh, Robert Forster. And he's like, I'm starting to think there's someone missing. <laughs> Robert Forster was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fucking dumbass. <laughs> uh, so good. I love it. Uh, it's time for the final, final countdown here. Uh, the Deacons, what do you got? Uh, this was, this was tough. There's this movie is built entirely on moments and scenes that don't really interconnect, but all stand out. Yeah. And um, I had to go with just a scene that, surprisingly blew me away it's betty's audition Mm, mm. it's the way that she captures everybody in her performance even the guy who was like "Eh, it's just another blonde let's get this over with but even he like falls into this her co-star is like what happened like he he was i don't think he thought he had that in him anymore yeah and I just love seeing that unfold. It was like the one bright spot of Hollywood that like she had. And even that is, it's a lie, but it was just so real. Cause you know, it goes like right before that her and Rita are practicing lines and it sounds so cheesy and stupid, but she made whatever that was feel so real. And I think that really speaks to Naomi Watts's acting chops that she can do. She can act as Betty acting or acting as Diane acting as Betty acting as this character who's giving an inc- incredible performance. That layering is unreal. Uh, and uh, just, I think that scene is pretty spectacular. Yeah. I'm with that. I'm with that for sure. Uh, for Naomi to just, just turn it on like on a dime. You're like, Holy hell. <laughs> and then for the casting director to walk out be like, God, that was unbearable. Yeah, I love that. I love when she's like, oh, poor old Wally. That movie's not going to be made. And it's just this conniving, you know, casting director who's like, oh, I was married to him for 25 years. Let me take you over here where you can be in this other movie. (laughs) In Hollywood. Fucking Hollywood. It's vicious. It's just like, I get, you know, everyone wants to be a movie star. But why would you want to put yourself through this? Like, why would anybody want to do this to themselves to debase themselves, to take away their identity like this is so twisted, you know, to just be like blonde number five who showed up today to audition. Yeah. It's yeah. so fucked the way that people are, you know, cataloged in Hollywood. I just, I know it's ironic considering we've built an entire podcast series out of movies and celebrating the work that comes out of this place. But, you know, I, I do like to try to hold as many people accountable as I can. I know I have no power to do anything about it, but talking about it is important. Yeah. Just acting like it's all fun and games is, is silly. That's for sure. You know, if you love something, you know, learn to hate it too, you know, learn to learn to be okay with both Uh, loving, maybe loving the outcome, but understanding that the outcome is not always pretty, you know, it's not always a pretty way to get there. Uh, Oh, always with you, man. And that's another reason why this movie kicks ass is that it shines a light on that. It shines a light on it the way Barton Fink does. You're like, oh, yeah. Thank you. Cool. Okay. You're honest. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Great pick. Great pick. That scene is 
just stellar. And every time I watch it, I, I I'm just kind of enthralled by what she's doing. I'm like, wait, what? She's incredible. <laughs> she's unbelievable. Uh, and that that scene, like you said, the Larry, the director, Bob Brooker. <laughs> Don't get real until it becomes real. You're like, and they're looking at him like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Uh, I love that. I love that so much. Um, my, 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 my deacons always has been, always will be what you brought up. Mark Pellegrino as, uh, as Joe, when he goes in to steal uh, the little black book uh, from Ed, Vincent, Vincent Castellanos is the actor there who's just got the toothpick and he's, <laughs> yeah, it's so funny, right? You know, yeah. And Mark Pellegrino is like, so that's it, huh? And then he shoots him right away. You know, he says, yeah, you know, it's the history of the world in phone numbers, and then gets shot. And then he tries to put the gun, you know, he, you know uh, Joe uh, cleans the gun and tries to put it in his hand to kind of make it seem like he did it to himself, and then shoots it through the wall at a lady that's in the apartment, you know, right next door. And then she's like, ah, something bit me. <laughs> and then he's like, fuck, <laughs> I got to go take care of this now. And then she fights back. She's totally fighting back and trying to like save her own life. And then we have the janitor on the other end with a vacuum who's at the end of, other end of the hall. And he's like, oh, Jesus, what's happening here? And then he loses his life. So Joe kills three people when he meant to kill one. <laughs> and it's, it's so funny the way it's framed, the way it's set up, the dialogue that's happening. Mark Pellegrino's outfit is funny. I'm obsessed with this scene. I'm so obsessed with it. It's another one that's out of left field but you need it. You need it to like, stay, stay with it. The pacing David Lynch understands that while I'm dealing with this real weird, serious stuff, it's nice to have these kind of, kind of little humor, little, little pieces of pieces of entertainment for the, for the, for the people. Even he understands that the audience needs a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a bone. Come on. (laughs) And I think that is genius. I think it's done so well. This is the most, this is the one that reminds me of the Coen's this scene just the dark humor it's people dying but it's funny and that that uh that part of filmmaking will always fascinate me when you can have this triple murder triple homicide turn into like probably the funniest scene of 2001 (laughs) this was nearly my deacons as well i i had it for about half the movie (laughs) and uh i had i changed it but honestly it could go either way and yeah. my favorite thing about this scene is that after he's killed all three people, he still puts the gun in the first guy's hand. Like, yeah. like anybody's going to believe that this is a suicide. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good pick. I, I love that, that bit. <laughs> he, she's screaming in his hands like, you got to help me. Something's wrong with her. Yeah. The guy's <laughs> like, I don't know about this. Yeah. Mark Pellegrino's like, I can't do everything by myself, man. <laughs> oh great good stuff perfect perfection yeah i there's a lot of stuff in this movie that could 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 be second place but that that's always been ever since i first saw it i was like what is this (laughs) this is is my kind of scene that and the winky scene i just i i can't get enough of i'm surprised the uh silencio bit never came up in any of your awards Oh, that, that part's really good. Rebecca Del Rio uh, singing in Spanish and that song translates to, it's like a love song about you never loved me the way I wanted you to, da, 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 stuff like that. 
So it makes sense that Bet, uh, Diane's dreaming this while she's with Rita as Betty. It just, it, that, that seems fucking brilliant and like makes me cry almost every time. That voice is unreal. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of memorable moments. I know a lot of people remember the pretty explicit sex scene, uh, which is just fine. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, sex scenes usually in, in films are just uh, just lame as fuck and just don't offer much to the story at all. But in Mohan Drive, I do think that it, like it stands with the rest of the film and is just as important as other pieces of the film. I think like truly recognizing that this is ultimately like a love story and a, and like a breakup story mm-hmm. is is very very important. And so that connection that they have uh, in both reality and in the dream is, is just huge. And it speaks volumes to Naomi Watts and Laura Hiring as, as performers. Like they, they, they really fucking go for it in this movie. And I, I, I yeah, I, I, I have, there are movies that like I can pinpoint that I'm like, that was, that was like a legitimate sex scene that actually like works, was believable and holds value to the story. It's not just eye candy, and this this movie's one of them. Yeah, I give this film an eight, uh, which is rare for for me for something like this. Uh, so yeah, I think this film is worth it. Uh, this is my second time viewing it, and I probably will watch this again at some point. Hell yeah, man! That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I, uh, you know, obviously it's a ten. I've spoken about that already for me. It's a somewhere in my top five to 10 favorite movies of all time. And I'll continue to continue to watch it and kind of research the ins and outs of it. Uh, not necessarily, not necessarily trying to understand the plot more, but just understanding like that movies can be this way and how these are made and the individuals that go into it. Uh, like today, I, you know, I, I truly got to explore Jack Fisk as being a part of this movie. And that makes so much sense. And uh, every time you watch something that you love, you're always going to gain something. You know, how many times have we seen Pulp Fiction? A hundred. You keep finding new things that you fall in love with. And I, that's how I feel about Mulholland Drive. Uh, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, the top five is a lot of fun. Those are always a blast. And uh, again, kind of giving awards out to the film and knowing what I love about it even more is cool. Being even more familiar with it. Absolutely. Yeah. You can tell the passion. Uh, behind every one of these episodes and uh i'm excited especially for next week uh what do we got oh man next week is gonna be gonna be so much fun man i i think we kind of kind of kind of well i definitely mentioned it uh earlier in the episode you know we're talking about wes anderson's royal tenenbaums next week first dispatch is going to be uh a big sneak preview movie that we cover uh next monday so we, we have to do, we have to do Wes Anderson. The other film that comes out is Dune. You know, and I, I, I we'll see, we'll see about that one. I would rather, I, I know French Dispatch is going to be at least good and entertaining. Dune, we'll see. We'll see about Dune. I have, I have faith in Denny. I have faith in the, the cast and whatnot, but that is just such a difficult story to capture and put on the screen. So Wes Anderson is the man for next weekend. So we're going to be talking about Grand Budapest Hotel from 2014 which got the most nominations at that ceremony and was just a 
mind fuck of, of a movie that that is so funny and casted so well and that is where i think the production design for wes anderson is at, at its peak uh a gorgeous gorgeous movie he had the right amount of money to use he had the right people believing in him that's because he did all the work with ball rocket and rushmore and roll tenenbaums and life aquatic you do all that work then you're going to be able to make movies that are even bigger and grander and uh, more, more fun, more entertaining. And Budapest is undeniable, uh, absolute, rewatchable as hell, you know. Uh, one of those that you just can't miss. So please come back next week. Have some fun with us. We're going to be talking about maybe Wes Anderson's masterpiece. Oof, that remains to be seen. And I will do the work. We're going to talk about Wes Anderson. We're going to do this right. So I'm going to watch everything I can find. Uh, thankfully his filmography is not that dense. I've, I've got some wiggle room, uh, but I'm gonna do what I can. Uh, I think it would be, you know, wouldn't be fair to the episode. Wouldn't be fair to Austin. And it wouldn't be fair to you guys. If I come into this with like two films, it's just, no, 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 no. <laughs> Doing this right. So okay. yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm uh, to tackle a, a filmmaker whose work I have enjoyed from what I've seen a guy who, clearly means a lot to independent film to uh texas artists and i am very excited this is going to be funny and grand budapest hotel is one of the funniest fucking movies i've ever seen that is such yeah. a blast <laughs> so this is going to be great yeah <laughs> um on sneak preview tomorrow uh caleb and i will be tackling halloween kills very yes. excited uh we may also be talking about the last duel if i can get some time to go see that it is a long one so we'll see uh and then this week on filmgasm on wednesday we'll be covering the hilarious 2010 horror comedy tucker and dale versus evil hell yes so a lot of good shit coming uh gonna be a good week cannot wait yeah yeah so much fun uh this this shit never ends you know it's only gonna get only gonna get better from here and uh i think i think oscar sunday as uh you know we do more stuff like pairing films with a sneak preview and kind of tackling filmmakers. I, I think that's just going to get better and more fun as the Oscars come more and more near. Uh, I believe they are April 27th of 2022. Oof. And, you know, we got still got a lot of time, but I think, uh, I think it's going to be really rewarding to kind of tackle a filmmaker with their new release and talking about them on Oscar Sunday for fun with yep. something older. So I, I love it. But today, Mulholland Drive, 20th anniversary. Uh, go watch it. Celebrate it. It's, it's the shit. It's, it's, uh, it's the best thing lunch has done, in my opinion. So uh, have fun with it. Yeah. Go check it out. And uh, we will see you next week.